uh, you've been taking a little venture in the Psalms, and I'm here to bring uh, this three-week foray into the Psalter to a conclusion. And if you've been keeping track, we're working our way backwards down the number line in this uh, Psalter. So we looked at Psalm 131 a few weeks ago, and Psalm 90, and now Psalm 65. And as we get ready to read from that, um, I wonder if you've had this experience. Whenever I get together with college friends, at this point, it tends to be the sort of event where pictures are prominently displayed, either on a screen or on tables before us. You've seen them on invitations beforehand. And it's an opportunity to sort of get nostalgic with friends. And so you look at a picture and it's like, man, I remember that night like it was yesterday. You know, that was my 21st birthday, you know. Or, man, do you remember this night? That's the night that you met, like, your wife. Like, this is the night, you know. And you get to some other pictures, and all you can really say is, well, we look really happy to be together. But where in the world is this picture? Where, where was this taken? I don't recognize the background at all. Uh, I mean, there's a brick wall, and that looks sort of familiar, but that could be anywhere. The Psalter works a lot like pictures do, and sometimes we know exactly what the context is. Psalm 51, we know uh, David wrote right after he had sinned against Bathsheba and had experienced forgiveness from God. Uh, Psalm 90, which you just looked at, we know is part of, or 131, which you just looked at, we know is part of the Song of Ascents. But Psalm 65, we really don't know what the context was, though if you look into some commentaries, there is speculation galore. So some people will look at this and say, look at all of this language of the fruitfulness of the earth. Very clearly we know what this is. This is a psalm celebrating the first fruits of the harvest. And others will say, no, 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 no. Look at all this language of water, rain, rivers, abundance. Very clearly we know that Israel had been uh, experiencing a devastating drought and God had answered their prayer for rain. Well, perhaps the context is not very clear, but we do have a snapshot of something that God wants us to see. And that is... God is intimately involved and connected with his covenant people, and not just his covenant people, with all of creation that he has made. He continues to sustain us and creation. In fact, we see something of his great love for us when we look at his great love for creation. So let me read this and pray. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs." You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. 
The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather in your name on your day. And we pray that you would dig out for us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see the risen Jesus. We pray for you to meet us as you have promised to, and we pray this by, that you would do this by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, in the first three verses of this psalm, what we have is a description of sorts of God. It's almost as if God had asked the psalmist, what am I like? And the psalmist says in verse 1, well, you are worthy of praise and of vows, And in verse 2, he says, you hear prayer and all sorts of people come to you. And and I think it's worth noting that these are not imperatives. They're they're descriptors, right? So there are places all over the Psalter where you sort of see like praise God, but that's not what's happening here. We simply see that the psalmist says praise is due to your name. We see another descriptor. In verse 3, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. And what we see is that the God who is worthy atones for the sins of a people who are not worthy. You know, a number of us have found ourselves to be successful in life or in seasons, things that we've done well. And when people praise us, especially people of influence, when they praise us, after a while, we can kind of start to feel like we deserve that praise. And the psalmist reminds us that the one who does deserve praise, he doesn't use his praiseworthiness to distance himself from us, but to draw near to us in mercy. This is why in verse 4, the psalmist describes the one to whom God chooses to bring near the way that he does. How does he describe them? He is blessed. She is blessed. And mixed in with this description is a promise. We shall be satisfied. That is a tremendous promise. Huge promise. And where shall we be satisfied according to verse 4? Where God draws us near to himself. When we're near him, in his courts, in his temple, in his house, it's all this sort of same, similar sort of language that makes us see that being with God is where we will be satisfied, which is probably a good time to remind you of a concept that Brian introduced a few weeks ago called parallelism. And it's, it's prominent in Hebrew poetry, especially in the Psalms, and, the, and it works like this. In parallelism, you have the first line introduces an idea. 
And then you have a line that follows immediately that is similar and complementary, but it has a twist. And it's this twist that helps us understand the first line. And it's sort of exactly how children, young siblings even, tell stories or jokes when they're piggybacking off of each other. Maybe you've heard something like this. Sometimes someone, a kid will run into my you know, room and say, Hey, Dad, what if the next time you went to the store, you saw a T-Rex eating all the customers? Yeah. You know, and then kid number two is like, Oh, what if like, Donkey Kong was in there squashing everybody with his fist? And it's like, Oh, I, I see the theme. I see where we're going here. But the thing with kids is they never stop at two or three sort of lines. They just sort of keep going. Or what if, or what if, or what if, until you finally say, hey, guys, all of this is sort of the exact same thing. And they look at each other and they're like, it's not really the same thing, Dad. You're right. It's not really the same thing, but you have made your point. Okay? So reading through the Psalter is almost as if you have two fully sanctified children tag-teaming with one another, telling you what God is like. So let's try verse 4. Line 1, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Line 2, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. So according to the parallelism of verse 4, To be blessed and near to God is to be satisfied with the goodness of his house. Now, what is a necessary precondition for us to be satisfied with where God is? We have to have an appetite for it. We have to be hungry for it. Hold that thought. So in verse 1, the psalmist proclaims, Praise is due to you, O God. And not just praise, vows. Commitments of praise are due to God. So let me ask you a question. What is your relationship with the word do? D-U-E. I don't love it. And I'll tell you what I mean. Have you ever had this experience? Saturday's here. You really don't want to do anything. Kids run in, Dad, let's go to the library today. But I don't want to go to the library today. So what do I say? I don't think so, guys. Not today. But our books are due, you know. It's like, no! Okay. I guess we're going to the library today. Now, have I been moved by the wonder and the splendor of a free house of knowledge, which for reasons unbeknownst to anyone will let me take home up to a hundred books at one time? No, not a chance. I have been moved by what is due. What is your relationship with the word due? Because a psalmist knows our complicated relationship with this word. He knows on the one hand, as he tells us in Psalm 139, that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made, created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. But on the other hand, according to what he says in Psalm 14, there's no one who does good, not even one. He knows that we were created with the right impulses And yet every single one of those impulses has been darkened by the effects of sin. 
What he also knows is that on the one hand, according to verse 4, God is holy and good, and yet on the other hand, he atones for the sins of those who are unholy and who are not good. He hears our prayer. God has created us to enjoy him, right, and to glorify him forever. And he is so committed to satisfying us that he brings us near to himself again in redemption that we might actually be able to glorify him. But notice he doesn't say, your praise is due to God, so get on that. Go ahead, get on that. He says, the one to whom your praise is due, he hears the prayer of sinful people. He atones for iniquities that prevail against you. And surely some of us are thinking, as we all do from time to time, yeah, but you don't know how far I have fallen. You didn't hear the way that I spoke to my family as we were getting in our cars to come here to worship, and you certainly didn't see me last night or this past week or this past month. It's been a disaster in my life. Why? Did your iniquities prevail against you? Have you been running from God? Because David has good news for us. The one to whom our praise is due, in Jesus, he hears our prayer. And you may know this truth up here, but admit it, sometimes you're not so sure in here. Could it be? When you're in this mindset, the thought of all flesh coming to God feels a lot more like all the dutiful people getting in their cars with library books that are due, driving to the library, and you can't seem to get in the car. But this is not the sort of image that the, psalm, the psalmist would have us think of. It's more like the image that we see in Luke 18 when parents are bringing their infants to Jesus to touch and to bless and his disciples bow up like bouncers and say, they got ID, right? What does Jesus say? Let the children come to me. How do infants come to Jesus? They're carried. They're brought. In verse 2, to you all flesh come. Well, how'd they get there? Verse 4, blessed is the one you choose and bring near. They're not dutifully getting in their cars They're being brought by God. This seems to be David's thought process because in verse 5 he says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. Okay. So in verse 2 the psalmist tells us God hears our prayers. And then in verse 5 he tells us that God answers our prayers. How does God answer our prayers? In what manner does he answer our prayer? With righteousness. Now, there's two ways that we could take the psalmist here. And the first is to say that the maker of heaven and earth is also the judge of the earth. And one day he will come and he will judge the world according to the standard of his perfect and righteous law. He will judge his enemies and the enemies of his people. And that 
is certainly a prominent theme throughout the Psalter, and it might be in play here a little bit, but I don't think it's the emphasis. The emphasis seems to be that when God answers our prayer in righteousness, his answer of righteousness is salvation. How does he answer a people whose iniquities have prevailed against us? He delivers them with salvation. Paul, the apostle Paul, unpacks this idea. In Romans, I mean, he tells us, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. In verse 2, we hear all flesh will come to God. In verse 5, he's the hope of all the ends of the earth. Does the psalmist expect that God is going to save everyone? No. An honest reading of the Psalms, an honest reading of all of Scripture for that matter, is not going to lead anybody to the conclusion that all people will be saved. Well, what about that you know, to you all flesh shall come business. What about you're the hope of all the ends of the earth? When verse 1, David tells us that the place of worship that he has in mind is in Zion. That is, in Jerusalem. He's thinking about the temple. So when he says God is the hope of all the ends of the earth, he is saying that God not only hears and atones for the people in Israel, but for everybody throughout the world who calls upon the name of the Lord. And so if you feel like an outsider to God this morning, there is good news for you. You do not have to be an insider for anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be answered with righteousness, will be answered with salvation, even if you feel like you couldn't be further away from him. See, what the psalmist is saying is that it's not so much the, the, the problem, the distance with God isn't being halfway around the world and that distance to the temple. That's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is our sin. Have you ever been hindered from seeing somebody that you desperately wanted to see, but circumstances kept you from being able to do that? Maybe you wanted to visit a loved one in the hospital last year, but COVID restrictions on the hospital literally forbid you from entering into the doors. Perhaps you were dear friends with the Knowltons in Scotland, but that's not exactly a day trip away. Whoever it is that you want to visit, maybe you can carve out the time in your schedule, but you don't have the resources to get there. Or maybe you've got all the resources in the world. But your schedule is so demanding that you feel trapped. Or forget going halfway across the world. Maybe you find yourself in a season or a circumstance where you don't have the freedom to get in your car and drive across town. And your situation, your circumstance is prevailing against you. It's an overwhelming feeling that you deal with. Wherever you feel powerless in this life, it is but a dim reflection of your powerlessness to deal with the sin in your life. And Jesus draws near to those who are powerless to deal with their sin. And if he draws near to us in our sinfulness, how much more will he be with us in the midst of whatever adversity or trial we face? 
If you want the grace of God to prevail in your life, you have to understand what the psalmist means when he says, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. It means that I am powerless against my sin in and of myself. I cannot conquer them. I cannot sweep them under the rug. There is no statute of limitations when it comes to my sin. And yet the God of heaven and earth is able to do for me what I cannot do for myself. And it's almost as if the psalmist expects us to ask, but would he really do that? Could he really do that? And he says, well, he made the earth, didn't he? Right? What are the most majestic mountains you've ever seen, the psalmist says? God made them. And who still storms and waves? The God who made them. That's who. Who can still the tumult in the hearts of wayward people? The God who made them. You know, in Mark 2, Jesus famously told a paralytic who had been brought to see him that his sins were forgiven. And what seemed apparent to everybody in the room, including the paralytic, is that what he really needed was to be healed of his paralysis. And the religious leaders were aghast that Jesus would claim to forgive sins. And what does Jesus say? That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, Get up, rise, take your bed, and go home. The God of creation not only has the authority and the power over the creation that he has made, he has the authority and the, and the power to atone for prevailing sins. And more than this, the God of creation desires to deal with our sins. But you might be wondering, I get it that God does this in theory. I've seen people changed by the power of God. Does he, could he do that in me? Look at how David describes God's ongoing providential care of creation. I mean, it can all, it's, it's language that's so intimate it can only be described as a visitation from God. I mean, like rain isn't just like water falling from the sky. It's God's visiting the earth and watering it to great enrichment. Like the way you might care for your own garden. Some of you love to take care of your own garden. And you water it in the right places, in the right amount it could be that the reason some of you love to take care of your gardens the way that you do is because the God of heaven and earth loves to take care of his creation. And you're made in his image. That river over there, it's not just water. It's God's river for the provision of grain. How does, how does creation itself respond to such care? You know, in verse 8... It says, you make the going out of the morning and the, and the evening to shout for joy. In verse 12, the pastures and the hills gird themselves with joy. In verse 13, the meadows and the valleys shout and sing together with joy. Do not miss this. 
when God takes care of his creation, creation responds with joy, praise. This is not only language to put God's power on display for us, it is language that puts God's love on display for us as well. Love so rich it is described as a visitation. And verse 11 tells us just what kind. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance is one of my favorite new lines. It's beautiful. Two months ago, my, uh, my black lab of 15 years passed away. 15 years is a long time. A dog lived with us in Alabama, and he lived with us in Pennsylvania, and he lived with us here in South Carolina, and generally people loved him. And one of the things that Knox did, which I'm sure lots of dogs do, is he loved to walk around the yard. Loved to walk around the yard, especially when he was a little bit younger. And it was very evident where he would walk and where he would continue to walk because pretty soon the path that he was walking became grassless. No grass in Knox's path, right? It's obvious where he had been because the grass dies. But the tracks of God do not kill all in its path. They bring abundance. The ruts of Jesus' wagon leave a wake of abundance where things are not trodden upon, but they grow in his wake. We see this in the Gospels, don't we? The fallen aspects of this good and beautiful world flee before Jesus, showing us again what this world was created to be and what it will be again one day. That where Jesus goes, blindness flees. Demons flee. Paralysis flees. The devastating effects of sin flee where Jesus goes, leaving abundance in his ruts. Jesus proved himself to be the God of creation, transfigured upon mountains. He walked upon windy waves. He calmed storms and waves by just a whisper of his word. And coupled with the kind of power that Jesus has over his creation is a love to go to the cross for yours and my prevailing sins. That our lives might be marked by ruts of abundance. This abundance is freely offered to us at the expense of Jesus. For Jesus to leave abundance wherever he goes, for the fallenness of this world to flee from him wherever he goes, ultimately it had to cling to him and to devour him on the cross. Jesus died that we might be forgiven, but more than that, that we might be reunited with our Heavenly Father, that we might be restored in body and in soul, and that we might delight and find satisfaction in God. Does this kind of love move you? Do you have an appetite for it? To be brought near to this Jesus, does it sound like a place of blessing and satisfaction? 
Brian mentioned recently that the human condition is often marked by mental ruts that can cripple us. And so please do not hear me say that the gospel is a simple fix for any mental rut that you get tripped over, right? Don't hear me say that. But do hear me say that you want to be in the ruts of Jesus. You want to find yourself in those ruts because they bring restoration and they bring abundance, The effects of the fall flee from it, even if in this life we will not fully or finally be done with our sin or our ailments. But one day we will, where those paths ultimately lead. You want to be in his path. Because he didn't just come to die for your sins. And he didn't just come that we would have life, but that we would have life abundantly. He came that we might have a true sense of satisfaction in him wherever he calls us to himself. He came that we might see the world as a place that has fallen to be sure, but as a place that is marked by his goodness and providential hand, that is marked by his presence everywhere, in rivers and in farms and in industries and in families. In you and me, Jesus is giving us a glimpse, surely, of a coming renewed heaven and earth where all the effects of this fall are lifted, where they flee to where they no longer exist. And so again, I ask, does this kind of love move you? Are you hungry for it? Because if you are, then it becomes natural to begin to describe this Jesus as the one to whom praise is due and the one to whom vows of commitment are owed. When you begin to describe Jesus this way, you find that rivers of living water are already springing up from within you. When you have been brought near to the God who has forgiven you, a life that is marked by praise is natural. And the scriptures tell us everywhere that where there's praise coming from our mouths, lives of praise are meant to correspond. And they ripple out in every sphere of our life. And so our delight in God shapes our relationships, our friendships, with our community group, with our spouses, our parents, our children. Our delight in God shapes the way that we approach time at the pool and time in the office. And in this way, it helps us to dream of what full restoration might look like in every sector of society when Jesus is finished with his project of renewal. But for praise to issue from our mouths or for praise to issue from our lives... We want to be where Jesus is. We want to be within his paths of abundance. And if we know where to find those, that's where we want to be. Jesus has told us we find those paths of renewal in his word, in prayer, in the sacraments, 
Even now, Jesus is moving through the aisles in this sanctuary. Wherever his word is proclaimed, he is moving, leaving paths of abundance that cause the effects of the fall to flee in mysterious but very real ways. That wherever we cry out in faith to him, paths of renewal are at work within us. In in mere moments, when we come forward to receive the very body and blood of Jesus by faith, he's working renewal within us, even if we don't know how to measure it. And as he does this, as he enables us to grow in faith and repentance, he goes with us. And so I want to leave you with this thought. Jesus has both called us to follow him and he has promised to go with us. And as we follow him out the doors of this sanctuary, wherever he has called us, what would it look like for Jesus to leave paths of renewal in our wake? Because he's going with us. And Jesus is clear not only for his great love for creation and culture and, the way, and all the places he's called us to play a role within that. What would it look like for us to intentionally seek to be a blessing where we go because Jesus is at work within us? Seeking the good of the culture and the offices that we work. Seeking the good of the cultures within our families and our friendships, our neighborhood groups. What would it look like to go with the hope and the assurance that not only are we called to follow Jesus, but we get to rest in his promise that he goes with us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. By our union with him, we also get to call you Father. We thank you for the ways that you have not only set your love on us, but you love everything that you have made. And you are still calling us to go out and to cultivate this good world that you have made that we have tainted with sin, but we thank you that you have not left us or this world. And so we pray that you would give us an assurance even now that the atonement that you offer in Jesus Christ is for us and for our own prevailing sins, that that sense would give us a deeper understanding and love and affection for you, that faith and repentance might grow in that realization. Thank you that you go with us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.